The following is offered by Discerning Hearts, a 501c3 nonprofit Catholic apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation through the use of new media. To download this selection, or to browse hundreds of other programs, or to contribute to our mission with a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible, visit our website at discerninghearts.com. In Episode 6 of our Freedom from Anxiety series, we are looking at rest in our emotions. We'll talk a little bit about media. We'll talk about transforming emotion, historical emotion, attachment cries through sugar and addiction, and finding the root of that. We'll look at some worthlessness, and I'll give you a couple of um, transformation exercises that you can use to help transform negative emotions. This is Sonia Corbett, the Bible Study Evangelista, and this is the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Welcome to this week's show. We're a little more than halfway through the series now, and if you've gotten your book, Just Rest, which we are using as the foundation for the entire series on freedom from anxiety, and if you've read far enough, you probably noticed that forgiveness is actually covered in the section that we're going to look at today, Rest in Emotions. But in this series for Freedom from Anxiety, we looked at it in the first couple of shows. And I did that because that's really, that's the most important piece. And it's the piece that has to happen before the others can take place. So that forgiveness exercise and the process of that that I gave you, when we close all of those doors to the enemy, then we can begin the deeper work. And, or I should say, it's not that we have to do it in that order, but it makes it much more effective. It keeps you from spinning your wheels. If you close the doors of unforgiveness and resentments and bitterness, that opens up the path for the rest of these exercises in thoughts and emotions to be fruitful. And that's part of the reason why we struggle for so long with freedom from anxiety or having anxiety because we don't realize that the practices that we're multiplying, especially the, the prayers, we multiply novenas, we multiply prayers, we, we do everything in our power to try to get God to do what we want him to do. And, and we do what we know. And we're told that these prayers and activities will work. And that's true. I'm not saying that they're useless, but what I'm saying is it's there's no use in doing all of that if you don't start with the foundation of forgiveness and if you don't cooperate with the sufferings that the Holy Spirit brings to you through the pop quizzes in your circumstances and relationships, if you're not cooperating with those, then the deeper work and the more permanent, lasting, deep peace that God wants to give us, it can't happen. So that's why I covered it first. I just wanted to clarify um, the order there because the series here that we're doing through the podcast series is it's a little bit different than the book, but that's why. So we have looked at, we've covered a lot of ground at this point. I hope that you're getting some relief, that you're beginning to get some victories in controlling your thoughts. And if you have gone through the the unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment exercises, and you have forgiven mom and dad, and 
yourself and God and your soul ties, if you've done that, and you have begun to look at your predominant fault, which if you're cooperating with your pop quizzes, then that's going to be a natural, um, that's going to be a natural process for you because the Holy Spirit really does that for us. We don't have to go searching for what God wants to do in our lives. It's obvious in our pop quizzes. It's obvious in the conflicts and the difficulties and the sufferings that we endure in our relationships and circumstances. And so that's why we looked at predominant fault and the patterns in our behavior and in our sin. Because if we can if we can get a, a good handle on our patterns of behavior, then we can start to see where the Holy Spirit has been pointing us and where he is trying to work and where he wants our cooperation. So that's why we did it in that order. Now, I want to just point out that thought and emotion together, we looked at the science behind thought and thoughts then very quickly are attached to emotions in our brains. And so we looked at thoughts first, because if you can stop negative thinking, then you can stop the emotion from becoming attached to the thought. And once that's done, you can set it aside completely, and then you're not harassed by these negative, fearful, anxious thoughts. But at some point, if you have tried and tried to get control of your thoughts and you're not having success, a lot of times it is because there is historical emotion that is attached to thoughts, and it there's a pattern of that. And what I mean by that is things have happened over and over again in the past that your circumstances and your relationships provoke. And that's what causes this historical emotion to rise to the surface. And that's why it's such a gift that the Holy Spirit brings these pop quizzes to us in order to show us where he's working. So if you've noticed a pattern, and maybe even if you haven't, if you'll cooperate with these pop quizzes, what happens with those is that historical emotion is tweaked and and you become irrationally emotional. And that's usually because there is historical emotion attached to it. So if you're in a pop quiz and you can't get control of your thoughts, it's typically because there's a lot of emotion involved from the past. And so trying to make sense of it now is not going to help. So that's why I'm doing an entire um, maybe two shows on how to transform negative emotion because talking about it, talking about your memories, talking about your emotions in therapy is not the same as healing them. Now, it can facilitate that and professionals know how to do that. And I have taken advantage of throughout my life, I've taken advantage of medication to help with that. I've taken advantage of uh, EMDR, If you don't know what that is, look that up. If you have PTSD or trauma in your background, EMDR is turning out to be a almost miraculous um, therapy and it's painless and it helps your brain process that negative emotion very quickly. This is the slow way, but it works very effectively and It is more natural, I can say, only because we're cooperating with the Holy Spirit. But I'm I'm just mentioning EMDR because it works. It works and it's almost miraculous. So if you struggle with PTSD or trauma, that is an avenue that you really ought to explore in therapy. Find someone who does that 
and can help you with it. It is, there's, they don't even really understand why it works, but it's, it's a brain thing. (laughs) But I just wanted to mention it to give you that tool as well, because right now, this past couple of years and all that's ramping up right now in our politics and in our church, it is so anxiety producing. If you're watching media I mean, we have to in order to know what's going on. We have to. So how do we separate finding what we need to know from the anxiety that's produced by all that's happening in the media? Well, this is part of the way. We really have to guard our thoughts. We have to make sure that we're taking those thoughts captive, as the Bible says, and that we're renewing our minds. That is the first step. But the emotion then is another thing that we really need to address. So we know at this point that thought and emotion is energy and spiritual energy is what creates or drives creation. It's what manifests our reality. So if we're focusing on negative thoughts, fearful thoughts, anxious thoughts, and we're, we're feeling that emotion constantly, then what we're really doing is drawing more of that to us. And that's meant to help us work through it and heal from it. That's what it's meant to do. But so often we don't realize that. And so we don't cooperate with it. And when we don't cooperate with it, it just multiplies and it gets worse. That's why it's so hard to get freedom from anxiety. You have to take a whole person approach in your thoughts, in your emotions, in your body, and in your soul. So that's why we're looking at it. Now, I want to just mention something that is almost terrifying, but I don't want you to be terrified. I, 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 don't, I don't offer any of this information to scare anyone. What I'm trying to do is get you to acknowledge the truth. And the truth is that our worst fears will be confronted in the desert. And it has to be that way because under our worst fears is a whole lot of broiling emotion. And the Holy Spirit is very interested in that because that is what drives a lot of the fear and the anxiety that that we experience. This is an absolutely necessary part of the desert. God wants us to confront our greatest fear. Now, when I say that our greatest fears will be challenged and provoked in the desert, I don't mean that the greatest fear will happen. Now, we can draw that to us by focusing on it too much. But what I mean is that the fear itself will be confronted. And Job is the example here. He says, after losing everything, he says, for the thing I greatly feared has come upon me and what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest for trouble comes. That's in chapter three, verses 25 and 26. And what we see there is that Job had an underlying fear that he carried with him all the time. Now for us, that could be the loss of a child. It could be cancer. It could be anything like that. But the desert is meant to provoke that. More on that when we get back. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, 
Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Sonia created the Love the Word Bible study method just for you, based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia. Job offers us an interesting illustration that on the surface kind of seems unrelated to the Israelites' wilderness wanderings. I mean, it has nothing to do with Exodus. It's in the book of Job. But Job is actually one of the oldest books in the Bible, and it supports this very important point that healing unresolved secret fears is one of the greatest invitations of the desert. God leads us there to expose those fears and then transform and heal them. Job had this very charmed life, and yet he harbored a secret, a nagging fear of what if and even when would that disaster arrive. And then in a single day, he went from having everything, the height of prosperity, to the the pit of despair. He lost all his children. He lost his wealth, his health. And in his own grief, his wife even turned on him, telling him to curse God. His friends all accused him of deserving everything that he suffered. So he felt completely abandoned by everyone. God was nowhere to be found. And he sat in an ash pile and he said, the the one thing I fear comes upon me and what I dread befalls me. So he is, he's asking why. And the thing that is so interesting to me about this part of Job is that it seems that he was, he was terrified of something. Now, I, we don't know what it, what it was, but what's interesting is that in his desert, he, he experiences he experiences the fear and it was meant in fact to be transformed and that was the whole point of all that job went through his friends attempt to convince him of hidden sin but were taught at the very beginning of the narrative that job was righteous and because of that he was singled out for this suffering and throughout the whole thing he maintains that he's innocent and he's tormented throughout the chapters he's tormented by these visions of evil that's personified in this unconquerable monster that's going to devour him. And then at the bitterest end of himself, he questions God personally, and that's when God speaks. Face to face, God reveals to Job the beginnings of the cosmos, which we've looked at, its staggering breath, the interconnectedness and the unity of everything, creation's exquisite macro and microscopic detail and the diversity, the order of the stars and the planets in space, the plan and purpose of every creature, 
and how he sees this arc of history from dinosaurs to the final conquering of evil. And in the face of all of that vast wisdom and matchless power and terrifying omnipotence, and and may I even suggest this vision of limitless quantum reality, Job repents. And after all of that, you might say, what? What what could he possibly have repented about? You know, he's he's said to have been righteous. The narrative is even clear that Job is innocent of sin. And yet he says in chapter 42, verse 3, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, he says in chapter 42, 3. So what did Job see? I mean, my goodness, but that's exactly what God longs for us to ask in our desert. He wants us to have that, that, that dialogue with him because he will show us himself and in showing us himself and in giving us a glimpse of his plan and in giving us a a glimpse of what our suffering is meant to do for us in the short term and the long term, that's when we experience very, very deep, deep rest. In the midst of his soaring prosperity, Job held a secret fear in his heart. And we don't know what it was, but certainly all of the losses that he incurred in that one day had to have been part of it. And there seems to be a hint of his fear in these practices that he practiced on behalf of his children after periods of feasting and partying, where he sacrificed early in the morning according to the number of all of his children. So maybe it was a fear of losing his children. And hidden deep in his heart was this fear that stalked him, even while outwardly he enjoyed all this health and wealth and the love of an abundant family. So did he dwell on that fear? Did he worry over it? And why would God allow Job to suffer the very thing he dreaded? And why does God allow that for any of us? He allows it because this type of fear constricts and suffocates the soul so that we're unable to rest in our blessings, however numerous they are or however rich they are. Instead, we multiply diversions and we search for entertainments like the Israelites did to distract us from this dread that's lurking underneath all of the ordinary moments of our lives. And we cannot appreciate them. We cannot rest in them because we have this this deep dread buried somewhere in us. Now, throughout the book, Just Rest, I shared the example of my friend who was terrified of cancer because she had seen her mother die of it. And um, what I what I was trying to offer through that story combined here with, with Job is I, I just want you to know that the desert is going to provoke that fear. And it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary to rest because it's it's buried very, very deeply and or at least the roots are. And we experience it in the background all the time. And that prevents us from resting. Now, I'm not saying that like Job that will experience this fear, but definitely we will. It will be provoked so that it can be brought to the surface so that we and God can confront it. Because confronting it then will transform it if we do it in God's presence. And then it won't bother us like that anymore. It won't be, it won't be boiling under the surface. Now, I say that because I experienced it in my own desert. I didn't know what my greatest fear was. I didn't realize that my greatest fear was rejection. And my experience with attempting to, to be published 
And the fact that it was thwarted over and over again throughout my desert, it finally brought it all the way to the surface. And it was so painful. I stood in my front yard screaming, cursing, snot everywhere. I mean, it was just the most brutal, raw conversation that I have ever had with God. And I'm ashamed of it now. And like Job, when when I saw what God was doing through it, I couldn't believe it. I could not believe that every single suffering that I had suffered led to that moment in order to to get me to that point where I was so exposed that that fear was obvious. I didn't know that it was there, but it was it was yanked to the surface after rejection after rejection after rejection in trying to be published, believing and knowing that this was a promise from God and not understanding why he wouldn't give me the thing that he said was supposed to be mine. And I got so angry and and I was so hurt and felt so betrayed by God. And I stood in my front yard and I said things that I am so ashamed of now because I can see what a gift it really was meant to be. And when I, when I saw that, when God, because I was just raging at him and I said, I am done. And in fact, I got a text that said that very thing from someone this week. And I didn't realize at the time, the timing of that was going to be so important for this person. But she said the same thing. I am done. I am done begging God. I am done doing all this work to try to, to facilitate this healing and this, the, anything good, you know, she's just looking for, for something good in her life. And I know what that feels like. A friend, if you're there, man, I'm telling you, I know, but I'm here to encourage you and tell you there's a purpose in that. It is not arbitrary. And if you continue to cooperate with all that the Holy Spirit is bringing up, and allow him to transform that very deep fear, that deep emotion that God does not want you to have good things. He does not want you to be at peace. That is, is an accusation of the enemy against God. And that's the temptation when we experience this very, very deep fear, this abiding fear under the surface. That is what God is trying to expose. He wants it brought to the surface. And in a sense, he wants us to quit. He wants us to finally say, I am finished. I am done. And why does he do that? Because there, there is an underlying attempt that we are we're trying to obligate God to give us the thing that he's promised us by multiplying prayers, multiplying spiritual practices. We just keep adding them because we think if we find the right combination, God will give us the thing that we've, we've been promised. And that is an attempt to manipulate God. And it won't work. It won't work because it's a gift and you cannot earn what God wants to give you as a gift. And that is what I had to learn in that long, long desert. It is a gift of God and it is mine. It is a promise, but I will not be able to manipulate or obligate God into giving me what is a gift. Otherwise, it's not a gift. I've earned it. God wanted me to know that this was a complete gift from him. And when I realized what I had been trying to do all that time, I was I was deeply, deeply shocked, first of all. But secondly, I, I was 
ashamed because I realized that I had transferred all my fear of my own father to God, my heavenly father. And I thought that if I just did the right things, that he would love me. And what I had to learn and what you will have to learn in this desert is that God already loves you and he will give you all those good things if you'll just stop trying to earn them back in a moment. You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible Study Spirits That Taste Like Cake. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. Self-medication is the seeking out of substitutes of that primary attachment need. That's why in the desert, abandonment, rejection, and worthlessness are provoked because abandonment, rejection, and worthlessness all come from an attachment need that was not met in our in our young formative years. And so when we are addicted to sugar or food or carbs or wine or whatever, whatever we're addicted to in that way, we're getting that shot of those chemicals that are attachment chemicals. And that's what underlies all addiction. Sugar is very powerful because of those chemicals. And the relationship is biochemical, which is why it's so hard to break. You can't just quit it. You can't just quit. So stop trying to just quit. Instead, we have to grow out of it. We have to grow out of it by turning to God in the deprivations, by turning to God every single time we don't have what we need and it provokes that rejection and worthlessness and abandonment. When we turn to God, he can fill that need. He gave it to us. That's why we looked at Philippians chapter four. My God will supply all my needs. This is a primary human need and God knows we need it, but we turn to everything but him. And he is the only one that can fill that need for us. Sugar is only going to do it temporarily. Food is only going to do it temporarily. Even our relationships, if you combine all of them, all of the intimate relationships and the community relationships that are meant to help us with this attachment need, if you combine them all in your life, you still wouldn't get enough to meet that need. It's infinite. So stop trying is my point. Stop trying and start turning to God. Stop trying and start turning. God himself can meet that need and he will. He put it in you. 
He knows you need what you need. (laughs) So turn to him and ask him to. When you experience this attachment separation, you are compelled to seek it out. That's where the compulsions come from. The addictions come, come from. It's an attachment hunger. It's an attachment need. And sugar becomes a relationship. And that's why we can't just stop it. We have to understand the chemical reactions going on under the surface and the psychology of it. The, that's what the desert is meant to provoke. It's meant to bring all of that up to the surface so that we get to the point where we acknowledge we're completely powerless over what's driving us. We don't even know what it is. And God, he allows those provocations in the desert over and over and over again. And they get increasingly more painful, increasingly more confusing, increasingly more baffling. And, and we suffer so much in order to pull that very, very deep attachment need to the surface. That is what is going on. That's why you feel so confused. That's why you f- you feel abandoned. That's why you feel worthless. That's why you feel this desire and compulsion to seek out self-medication. But I'm telling you, please don't do that anymore. Learn to, to turn to God. Learn to turn to him and ask him to fill that need. You will start to feel anxiety, alarm, fear. And then when you start to feel that, notice where you go. Notice what you turn to when you feel that stress. This is our preeminent need and it overrides everything. It overrides your intention. It overrides your consciousness. It overrides everything, which is why we can't control it. You you can go on a hundred diets. You can you can decide a hundred million times you're going to quit whatever it is that that you keep turning to. But until you address this underlying need, it's going to be impossible. So I'm, I'm telling you so that you can learn not to self-medicate because self-medication prolongs the process of the desert. It it numbs the worthlessness, rejection, and abandonment. And that's why it takes so long for us to learn the lessons of the desert. And most of us never do it. Most of us never learn these lessons. If you will cooperate, if you will turn to God in those deprivations that provoke the worthlessness, abandonment, and rejection, if you will turn to him in every single deprivation, you will begin to see and learn and know in the deepest recesses and abysses of your soul that you are loved. You are seen. Now, part of that is contradicting lies with the truth. Part of that is battling our thoughts and getting control of those. But the other part is this emotion key. We have to deal with the basis of what's driving us. And it's this attachment need. Now, when we when we get in this cycle of self-medication, we we are in protection mode. We've talked about this before. We can either protect or grow. But our bodies and our systems cannot do both of those things simultaneously. And when you're freaking out over worthlessness, abandonment, and rejection and don't realize it, and you're self-medicating, you're protecting. And if you're protecting, you're not growing. You have to move from the fight or flight response, which is triggered by the worthlessness, abandonment, and rejection, which is triggered by the circumstances and the relationships in your life. When that begins, we start to self-medicate. 
But if we'll stop doing that and start turning to God, we can experience the safety and the maturation, the maturing that occurs when we are building that relationship with God. He can prove to us over and over again, and he will, that he will provide for us, that he does love us, that he does see us, and that he sees us more deeply than anyone on earth has ever been able to see you God sees you. That's why you exist. That's why you are in being. We looked at that last week. But he will show you the truth of that as you turn to him in these very, very terrifying deprivations. And the desert is meant to provoke that. I'm telling you so you won't be surprised, you won't be shocked, and you won't self-medicate and prolong the process. I'm trying to help you. So we have to grow out of these attachment self-medications. You can't just stop it. Let everything belong. Take your fear to God. You're going to be afraid over what's happening in our in our world right now. You will. But go to God with it. Go to God with it and tell him how you're feeling and what the roots of it are and help ask him to help you identify what those roots are and where they come from. And likely it will end up being worthlessness, rejection or abandonment and maybe all of that together. And if you've had trauma and if you experience PTSD, then the it's a boiling pot and it can erupt at any moment and it's it's terrifying. But God knows all of those processes, all of the chemical processes, all of the thought processes, all of the reactions in the brain, all of the processes in the body, all of it. He knows the connections. So let it all belong. Don't pretend you're not f- afraid, but go to him with the fear and control your thoughts. He- ask him to help you see things from his perspective. You control your thoughts by stopping them in the very beginning when they start to harass you and you ask God for his perspective and his wisdom. That's what transforms the thoughts. But God himself will transform the emotion. Now, I'm going to give you a transforming exercise that you can do with the Holy Spirit in just a moment. But I want to, by way of review, just go back over this quickly. So in transforming our thoughts, we interrupt the process immediately. As soon as you catch yourself winding up in this hamster wheel of thoughts stop it stop that and ask God for his perspective on your situation every single day be in the word of God through love the word listen observe verbalize and entrust when you are in the word of God every day he will use the readings to address your particular situation and circumstances, and he will tell you what the right thing to do is. We talked about the stop tool. We sin not, we tell God, we offer the right sacrifice, and we put our trust in God. So we stop the process, and then we ask him for his perspective, and we do what he tells us to do in that situation. Now, this is a process. You have to learn how to do it, okay? But if you'll begin, it will. It, it, he will do this very quickly. He wants us to learn And he wants us to follow him. So he's not going to leave you. Just try it. Try it for 40 days. Be in the readings every single day. And that is what transforms our thoughts. We go to him in the situation. We ask him for his perspective. And we don't allow ourselves to go down the road of fear in our thoughts. We interrupt the process, the chemical process that starts in our brains so that there's not emotion attached to the thoughts. If you'll set them aside very quickly, there won't be emotion attached to that thought. If, though, you have thought about it a lot and there is emotion attached to it, 
this is how we address the emotion. There is a visualization exercise in the chapter in Just Rest, um, Emotions at Rest. I do this exercise in almost every single one-on-one consultation that I do because the science behind it shows that it gets beyond the judgment side of our brain, the left-brained part, directly to the right-brain part where our processing of sensory information happens first. And that's where the emotion occurs is in the right brain. But then immediately the left brain takes over and judges and and categorizes what we've experienced. And so that's where we get the labels. This is bad. This is good. This is scary, whatever. And those can sometimes be full of judgment, first of all, which is very destructive. But secondly, they can be erroneous. We can see something and think it's it, it makes us afraid, but there's no real danger there. And that all happens in the left brain. We can get to the right brain directly through this visualization exercise. And I'll give you the science on that when we get back. I'm Sonia Corbett, the Bible Study Evangelista. You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible study spirits that taste like cake. If you love having Bible study in your pocket, you can become a friend of the show. Click on the yellow friend of the show button on BibleStudyEvangelista.com and become a supporter of any amount and any frequency. Now, here's Sonya. govern our thoughts and passions and find rest. The church calls those crazy emotions, those roller coaster highs and lows, passions. We can find rest and we must govern our thoughts and emotions in order to find rest. We learn to govern our thoughts and emotions by trusting God with them and allowing him to transform them. Thoughts have boundaries. We can just stop thinking negative thoughts. We can focus on truth and that causes them to dry up. And we can set them aside. We can also allow God to transform negative thoughts through the scriptures. But emotions don't have boundaries like that. They can't be controlled or ignored or silenced. If you silence or try to control an emotion in, a, in the sense that you suppress it or ignore it or pretend that it's not there, that's going to be very, very destructive. That's where... People who are not passionate the way I was, I was very aggressively angry. And as soon as God began to correct me for that, I started repressing the anger, pretending like I wasn't angry because I I didn't want to be bad. (laughs) I didn't want to be bad and hurt somebody, you know, so so then I pretended I wasn't mad at all, which is it's destructive too in the opposite direction. And so both are sin. If you're one of those people who reacts aggressively outwardly in that way and you attack other people, of course that's sin, but you wouldn't necessarily consider it sin to do the same thing to yourself. And why not? God says, love the Lord with all your heart, all your, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't love yourself, and I don't mean in this weird self-care way where we multiply all kinds of luxuries and we pamper ourselves. I don't mean that, although sometimes we need some of that. What I mean is this true healing that you allow yourself 
to to feel all the feelings that you really feel, but you take them to God so they don't metastasize. I can't say that word. You know what I'm saying. So unaddressed emotion is what drives negativity and it makes it circular and uncontrollable. We cannot control or silence or ignore emotions. They have to be acknowledged and they have to be transformed. We have to be honest about how we really feel. That's why positive thinking is not going to help. Ultimately, we can we can control our thoughts and we can think positively, but if there's emotion under it that says something different, then it's not going to work because the emotion is the truth. We truly feel this one way, but we're telling ourselves that we don't feel that way and that we shouldn't feel that way. You see how the judgment kind of creeps in? God will not transform negative emotions unless they're acknowledged usually, honestly, because he respects our free will. And if we look at the Israelites, if they had been self-aware of this underlying fear, if they had cooperated with their situation and their circumstances and and all of that, that God was trying to teach them through the, the desert wanderings, if they had gone to him with the fear of what they were experiencing in deprivation, and if they had allowed that to bring the pain of their memories of bondage in Egypt to the surface, they would have found a remedy for their continual complaining and accusations. This self-knowledge, the saints called it, would have helped them discern the emotion that was driving the knots of negative thoughts rooted in their memories of Egyptian slavery. And then in taking that negative emotion to God in prayer, he would have diffused it and transformed it and led them directly into the rest that they were looking for in that promised land. Now, if thoughts are sparks of energy, emotions are currents. If you think about people who are constant drama people, it's it it's hard to even be around them, isn't it? It's They live in currents of negativity. And if you live in that, whether it's your own or other people's, it's exhausting, it's depressing, it's anxiety producing. And that's why positive thinking, cognitive therapy, and even Bible studies are not always enough to give us rest. Sometimes we hit a wall that we're unable to get beyond because the wall is unresolved emotion. It's the emotion behind the thoughts that is breeding and drawing more negativity and judgment and destruction. So we can think positively, but if we really feel something, then we need to acknowledge how we really feel. And we do that in the presence of the Holy Spirit so that he can transform it so that it doesn't become a pattern and we don't fulfill that prophecy through the manifestation of what we're emoting and thinking about. The converse is true too. Kindness and love produce kindness and love. We reap what we sow. So emotions have to be transformed in order for our thoughts to be healthy. So there are really only two types of emotions, fear and love, and both of them have their own biology. That's the reason the Bible condemns fear as sin, because it's the opposite of love. First John 4, 16 through 18, it says it plainly that fear is a lack of love. And, and you can see there that, that those are the, really the only two emotions, fear and love. All the others are simply variations of the two. And love is the healing power. Perfect love casts out all fear, First John four eighteen says. So how do we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in transforming our negative emotion? Well, science shows us that visualization and art, prayer, 
and healing all occur in the same places in the brain. They produce similar brainwave patterns and physiological changes. In fact, visualization and imagination and reflection produce the same physical changes in the brain as actually performing what we're imagining. That's the reason our thoughts are so powerful. Split brain research focuses on the differences in function between the right and the left sides of the brain. Neurology research shows us that the body processes every experience and emotion as an image first in the right brain, and then it interprets the experience, experience and the emotion as thoughts and words in the left brain. So the brain receives the in sensory information in the right and as emotion and image, and then the left brain translates the emotion and image into thought. So science shows us then that imagery is the human body's primary form of emotional communication. I find that fascinating. But in transferring, as I mentioned earlier, from the right side to the left side, side from emotion to thought, the brain sometimes loses something in the translation. The left side betrays our feelings sometimes by the analyzing and the categorizing and the judging of every experience we have and the emotions we feel as good or bad, right or wrong, acceptable or unacceptable. And that automatic evaluation reinterprets and alters and sometimes even denies the truth about what really happened. And so we... Well, here's an example. So maybe you're one of those people who's emotionally distant and unavailable to the relationships around you. When you block emotions for years, you train your brain to say, I'm not going to feel this. That's where the self-medication comes in. You get to be an expert at not feeling, but your mind and your soul and your body keep score through disease out-of-control habits, and out-of-control eruptions and emotions. So instead, we have to ask, what is this emotion trying to tell me? The brain analyzes, rationalizes, categorizes, and judges every single experience and emotion we feel, but the spirit is a persistent truth teller. That subconscious, it'll come out one way or the other. It commands our attention, and the heart doesn't think. It feels, and feelings are not logical. They're not sensible, but they are truth. If you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. That's why positive thinking that denies or deflects underlying, underlying emotions is not going to help you to receive rest. The truth we receive from the Holy Spirit in the scriptures helps us to discard those old thought patterns and negative beliefs and attachments to pain and wounds that keep us in slavery to stress and anxiety and unforgiveness and negativity from our experiences and the people with whom we relate. God wants us to accept our emotions, the ugliness of them and everything. He wants us to stop judging them and to understand and learn and know who he is in all of that. So... How then do we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in transforming our negative emotion? We can't just be nice. We can't just be easy to get along with and pretend that we don't feel what we feel. That does violence to a very delicate part of yourself that's very important and necessary, and it must be acknowledged and it must be allowed a voice. So we can visualize with the Holy Spirit and that gives voice to the emotions that have been judged as too wrong or dangerous 
to actually express, and it transforms them in his love. You can see then how psyching yourself up with positive thinking is not going to work. If you politely say one thing and then feel another, I mean, we do it all the time, but the human conscious consciousness, the subconscious is insistent. Tension, agitation, depression, anxiety, restlessness, moodiness, and apathy, all of that. And then eventually disease will tell the truth. So here is how to transform emotion. I don't have time to go through um, the rest of the science behind it. But here's the exercise. You need some privacy, about 30 minutes, a couple of blank sheets of paper, and a box of crayons or colored markers. And then you take a couple of deep breaths, focus, and get recollected, as the saints say, Focus your thoughts and attention on the negative emotion or the situation. It can be a big one or a little one that you need help with or that you want to work through. A work situation, relationship, health issue, whatever the source of negativity and stress is, imagine what it feels like in your body. What does it look like? What image or images come up? If you could make that a symbol, if that had a symbol to it, what would it be? Is it a face, an object, a place? It doesn't matter. Don't judge it. Just trust what you see as being okay and reach for the color or the colors that best express what you see and how you feel. Now, I don't have time to finish this, so I'm going to do it in a in a special segment for my friends of the show. And if you're not a friend of the show, you can become a friend of the show and get it. But if not, wait until next week and we'll go through the rest of this process together. The visualization exercise that helps transform emotions. I'm Sonia Corbett, the Bible Study Evangelista. Thank you for listening to the Bible Study Evangelista show. Find out more at BibleStudyEvangelista.com.